Okay, everybody, welcome back to Roses and Rhetoric. I am your host, Jimmy Hackett. With me, as always, my multifaceted and charming co-host. Joseph Stanford. Very good. So we're going to keep with the uh, format we've been playing with these past few episodes where Joe and I both share a, a written piece of work. Uh, before doing that, we had a couple of announcements that we wanted to make. Uh, first off, to everybody who has been going to the website, uh, we thank you for doing so. We hope that you're sharing it with people. Um, also, be sure to check us out on our Twitter, at roses underscore rhetoric. And the website is www.rosesandrhetoric.com. So, Joe, before we get started, were there any other announcements you wanted to make or anything else you wanted to touch on before we hop into our pieces? Uh, we're uploading content to the website each week, so make sure you stay up to date with that and subscribe on the site. Yes, subscribe. That's the best way to be informed of every time that we make a new uh, release. We are putting, uh, you know, we put the podcast on there, but we also put the, our, our written works up there as well. And uh, I don't think every written work that we put up there is one that gets covered in these podcasts. So there's definitely things to see there uh, that are worth checking out that you will not hear uh, on, the, on the audio file. Uh, so, but with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, Joe, I know that you have a, a written piece today. When you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Okay. This piece is called Trust in Institutions. With respect to the upcoming election and confidence in Trump, it is interesting that just a small handful of cities ended up determining the entire election. Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Milwaukee. In all these democratically run cities, inexplicably stopped counting ballots on the most important night of 2020. Trump publicly declared his suspicion of foul election play in these cities well in advance of election night. This was a sound priming method for persuasion, independent of whether he thought he would win or lose. If he wins, everyone will forget his predictive claims of election fraud and Trump keeps his desk in the Oval Office. If he loses, it won't come as a surprise to anyone that he challenges the election results. Publicly announcing your anticipatory suspicions of election skullduggery provides multiple paths to victory. Every political move or strategy can be spun into whatever narrative the fake news desires. This is how the fake news stays in business. Suppose the Trump legal team intended to deploy an early and aggressive barrage of post-election lawsuits to stun the courts and begin the election fraud conversation while buying time until more substantial lawsuits were prepared based off circumstantial evidence. The legal team may have even had some of these burner lawsuits ready to file prior to election night. However tactical this strategy may have been, it still provided a surplus of chum for the sharks of the fake news to feed off of. Any sequence of events, no matter how noble or strategic the motivation, can be exploited with a fake yet believable news story. Creating a fake news story is just as seductive to the capitalistic journalists who spin reality as it is to the fake news consumers who seek stories consistent with their own personal reality. When it comes to politics, we are particularly subject to emotional inertia in the direction of our own biases. Today, this is a monetized industry. In the weeks leading up to the election, why wasn't Biden campaigning 
while Trump was outperforming and energizing multiple sold out crowds a day in multiple cities and states. After holding massive rallies in four different states earlier that day, Trump closed out a packed Miami crowd at 2 a.m. before a short night's sleep and doing it all again the next day. He did this day after day leading up to the election. Trump called this leaving it all out on the field. This was all done despite being hospitalized for COVID-19 just a few weeks prior. Biden, on the other hand, was getting honked at by a handful of unenthused cars in parking lots at a cadence of a few events a week. It looked more like PR stunts than a campaign rally. I assumed that this was an artifact of Biden's health. Maybe at his ripe age of 77, Sleepy Joe didn't have enough gas in the tank to hype up crowd after crowd, day after day. Even though the fake news spun a narrative that he couldn't string together a sentence, Biden always seemed more or less coherent during his public appearances. In his debates and press conferences, we never saw him encompass the stumbling mess the fake news made him out to be. But now it's clear to me, Biden had no hustle in the moments before the election because he knew the election was fixed. Why risk putting yourself out there to contract COVID or make yourself vulnerable to gaffes when you know it wouldn't make a difference come election day? Sure, only time will tell if this is what actually happened. But in terms of what makes a better story, let me pose to you the following two scenarios. Scenario one, Trump wins in such a colossal landslide that despite widespread and targeted election fraud, he serves four more years before passing on a broken democratic system to the next generation of presidential candidates. Or scenario two, Trump comes up short on election day because of election scroll druggery and calls out the fraud and fixes the system, thus restoring our nation's democratic integrity and granting him another four years in the White House. Which makes a better and more interesting version of reality? I will leave you with the following tweet from Scott Adams concerning trust in institutions. Quote, let's replace trust in intuitions, in institutions with transparency and good systems. We should never trust institutions. Never. End quote. Very good. Very good. Um, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, we'll turn it over to my piece and then open up for a little bit of discussion. So this piece is titled, In the Halls of Valhalla. Have you ever felt the psychosphere? Have you ever been transported to the superverse where all future lines converge on one location? Where you could reach out and feel the guiding hand of fate? This is how I felt in the most important Halo 4 match of my life. Big team battle, capture the flag on the best map in the game, Ragnarok, a remake of a favorite Halo 3 map, Valhalla. My friends and I played a clinically concerning amount of Halo in college. Our preference, big team battle. Nothing could compete with the energy, 
or the grandeur of 16 people connected over cyberspace. But what made Halo special wasn't so much the online play, but the way it connected with local play. Four friends, in my case, best friends, could play online together, locally on one Xbox. It was the perfect way to open up a weekend or cap off a long day. No matter what time it was, there was always time for one more match. But I don't want to give the humble reader the impression that this was all fun and games. Getting four people on one Xbox always had its challenges. The song and dance of getting four working controllers connected to the device, the truffle hunt for batteries, which eventually led to the AA triage, deciding which battery-operated device could be sacrificed for the duration of the Halo session. And this is to say nothing of the time spent on dreaded updates. Caffeine presented its own challenges as well. Too little, and you're a zombie in a valley of cheetahs. Too much, and you're freaking out at slow load times. But the perfect amount, and your body transformed into the most formidable fighting machine this side of a DARPA research facility. Wi-Fi was never a given. At any moment, the god of signal strength can turn the tide of battle. And in the thralls of college education and the competition between online coursework, 4K video games, and pornography always presents challenges. In the end, every bit is fought for. The market decides with a wisdom unapproached by modern man. But for people, united in purpose is almost always a powerful monopoly on claims for bandwidth. This was set to be an exciting match. Outside, a clear night sky, like glass, reflecting the shadows of a fallen world. Those dark forces of cowardice that lurk around our souls, but also rays of light, reminding the quaking soul of a deeper calling. A full game of eight versus eight. Among the ruins of the forerunners, we prepared for war. It was a brisk start. The opposing team quickly took the lead. Back-to-back -back scores put them up two captures to none. Down by two captures is a death sentence for most. But I saw this as the opportunity for the comeback of the century. We quickly regrouped at the base and mounted an assault. No time to play it safe. We blitzed the whole team, shouting incoherent battle babble over the headset doubting the whole time that the headset even worked. We made a strong push with a ghost to clear out a path for the remaining troops. Our sniper had a field day, picking off the enemy like daisies. We had a slight advantage in numbers and managed to mount an on-foot assault to the enemy base, leading to a successful capture. Down one. But a few clever teammates had managed to hide out at the enemy base quickly grabbing the flag when it respawned. No one on the other team was prepared. Before I knew it, we had tied the game, and with plenty of time left. The atmosphere swelled with bloodlust. Neither team would settle for a tie. We clashed in the middle of the map. Forces pinned down behind cover, both sides waiting for vehicles to respawn. 
The screech of banshees in the sky painted the hellscape as both teams tempted fate one last time. Banshee pilots are a special breed. I'm a decent pilot myself, but I was never among the greats. A true Banshee pilot knows how to push the boundaries of the craft. I was always a little too skittish. Keeping it in play for a long time, but never quite capitalizing on their awesome power. My specialty was always ground assaults. A decent mid-range fighter who was equally at home with assault rifles and battle rifles. This gave me a certain flexibility over other players who needed more specialized weapons to be effective. I also had a good instinct with grenades, which came in handy for fighting outnumbered. But my true specialty hadn't yet had a chance to make its appearance in this match. That was until the vehicles respawned. Our forces fell back to take advantage of the hardware. Time was running out, now or never. One last ride against all odds to prove that in this life, fortune truly favors the bold, especially if the bold happen to be rolling three deep in a warthog. Rolling three deep in a warthog fills your veins with fire and ice. A skilled turret gunner is worth their weight in gold, and a ballsy passenger has been responsible for more than one comeback. But the driver has to hold it all together. They need to have their head screwed on pretty tight when the firestorm comes. A steady hand behind the wheel to avoid getting turned around on the jumps. A bed stop is a death sentence when you're under fire. The main job of the driver, keep this fucking thing moving towards the target. We tore across the map, opting to go under the rock formation. It avoided some of the main fight in the middle, but left us vulnerable to a rocket strike if the other team had the launcher. They did. Our gunner spun around and landed good shots, but not before they managed to get off one rocket. I took evasive maneuvers, but it caught our back tire. The gunner didn't get out of the vehicle in time and died in the explosion. The passenger and I survived and made a mad dash for the enemy base. We made it inside and lobbed grenades into the hallway, taking out a few enemy fighters. My teammate noticed enemy forces coming from outside. Without thinking, he took off to fight them, leaving me to go for the flag. I ran upstairs and grabbed it. Under fire, I took out an enemy player with a melee, then entered the man cannon. I shot into the air, soaring across the map and over the enemy. Their forces had retreated to stop me at their base. Classic mix-up. After my flight to cross the map, I was home free. I ran the flag into our base for the final capture as the room burst into screams. Victory filled the halls of Valhalla. And maybe it was just a game, but consider this. As we speak, the signal used for communicating that game lives on, permanently etched into the fabric of this universe. Radio waves carry the signal of the match, painting it across the cosmos. Till one day, another civilization receives the transmission. Maybe they watch the transmission and conclude all days on earth were filled with such honor, glory, and sacrifice, a record of greatness, if only in imitation. But more importantly, this is a moment in my life that I turn to, to remember that heroes are real and that not all heroes wear capes, but it sure helps if they can fly, if only for a moment. And so I leave this piece 
with only one request of the humble reader, fight. Yeah, another excellent piece for the uh, Roses and Rhetoric podcast. Thank you. I feel the same way about yours. Uh, well, how do you want to? How do you want to start? Do you want to go start with mine first, and then transition over to yours? Yeah, let's so let's start with yours, and and I'd like to dive dive in right into the deeper meaning of this. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, first of all, I, I I remember the same big team battle that you're discussing here. It was a, a true heroic comeback. And an absolute act of valor, um, with, with that, those final few moments in that in that battle. And it, and it so was it I was think a photo I speak on behalf of the entire team as we thank you for that. Yes. Yeah. Excellent, and, excellent and driving it was, skills. And it was a team effort as always. And you know, I, I couldn't have asked for a better squad. You know, truly, truly a great map. You know, the the things that uh, that we live for in this life. I mean, it was it, it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and then you also spoke that uh, Ragnarok was the map that was being used and you cited that as the best map in in halo um i just wanted to get your opinion on what you thought of some other maps such as complex vortex maybe even meltdown settler yeah you know i when we, when we started today's episode i thought you know the most controversial thing that we're going to talk about today is going to be uh ragnarok and whether or not that was the most whether or not that was the best map in in halo 4 i i feel pretty confident in saying that it was um, it was a, a good mixture of, uh, of good space, good vehicle fights. Uh, it was a good sized map. I really enjoyed it. In, in, in my opinion, the reason I, I give uh, Valhalla, or in this case Ragnarok, a bit of an edge over some of the other maps that you mentioned is I always liked maps where you had very well-defined enemy bases and you had good symmetry uh, between the opposing forces. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, basically cloning the ideas from like a Blood Gulch from Halo 1. So I always enjoyed maps like that, and I felt that Ragnarok really, uh, really provided that uh, that aesthetic or that setup in in the best way in Halo Four. Excellent. And another thing that you you highlighted was some of the technical difficulties with playing playing a game like Halo, and you mentioned yes. the the, wi the Wi-Fi gods not being on your side. Mm. Um, you you mentioned uh, battery triage. What? where you would take batteries from other devices to power the Xbox controllers. What, what were some of the go-to devices that you would pull batteries from? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really important question for anybody who's listening, who's maybe a freshman or a sophomore who's trying to figure out like, where, where can I find batteries? You know, what, what can I do to find batteries? Remember this. But yeah. Like it's three in the morning. All yeah. the stores are closed. There's nowhere mm -hmm. you can go. What, yeah. what, what do you do? So, so here's what I would say. Here's always a try and true method. Get the volume on your TV correct and then use the AA batteries and the TV remote. Uh, you want to set the volume a little quieter than you want to because odds are in a public setting, people are going to be mad at the volume being too loud rather than too low. So if you're, if, if you're trying to, to, to preset your TV and then take the batteries out of your remote, set the TV volume down a little bit lower than what you would normally keep it at. The other thing I'll say is that if you are in a in a, a, a home setting and you're looking for AA batteries, remember this, you always have way too many DirecTV remotes. And so you can always find AA batteries and the DirecTV remote that no one's ever using. So definitely use those batteries as well. Okay, there you go. That's for all our listeners. There's some good tips, some good words of wisdom there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, a couple of vehicles while you talked about this one battle in particular um 
I just want to run by some vehicle combinations to you, and then maybe you could tell me which ones uh, would be your preference. Sure. Or maybe, maybe it's conditional, so maybe you can speak to that. So the first example is Wraith versus Scorpion. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm a big believer in the Scorpion, always have been, always will be. Um, I like it. I like that vehicle a lot. I always had better instincts in the Scorpion than I did in the Wraith. Um, I mean, obviously the Wraith has the boost. That's always a nice feature. Um, but I, I always liked the, the Scorpion myself. I still remember in Halo 1, the first time that you get to drive the Scorpion. Uh, it's just a really powerful moment um, and definitely one that I remember to this day. So I think more, if anything, just for nostalgic purposes, I, I favor the Scorpion over the Wraith. Okay. Now the, the Scorpion I understand is a, is a human vehicle while the Wraith is more of an extraterrestrial vehicle. Do you think that that, that camaraderie and team teamship with uh, the human race has anything to do with that decision? Yeah, most definitely. You know, the, the first time that you encounter a Wraith uh, in, in Halo, I mean, it's, it's, you know, this hard kind of a boss fight like situation that definitely doesn't help uh, uh, build good memories for that kind of vehicle. Uh, versus with the Scorpion, when you first encounter it, it's this, you know, this, this saving moment, this extremely powerful vehicle that, uh, you know, really saves the day. So, so that, that's definitely a part of it as well. Um, but I think, I think ultimately it's, it's just that, that connection, like you're saying with, you know, this is a human piece of equipment versus the, the covenant piece of equipment. There's always going to be that bias. And in this case, it's the biases for the Scorpion. Okay. The next example, Banshee versus Ghost. Yeah, so you know, I I love the Banshee. I mentioned that in my piece. I was never a great pilot, but I wasn't bad either. I was somewhere in the middle. I love the Banshee. I love, especially on Ragnarok, uh, a Banshee that's been in play for a long time can really make or break uh, a victory for a team. Um, it's just such a powerful vehicle on that on that map. Uh, there's a lot of space to fly around with and really avoid enemy fire fire so you can keep it in play for a long time um i, I do like the ghost and, and definitely the, the the ghost is a powerful weapon as well but for me i always just love the the freedom and flexibility of having those those three dimensions of travel in the banshee and so for that reason i would go with banshee okay excellent and uh, another added feature of the ghost however I, i'm partial to the ghost hmm. uh maybe that's more an artifact of my lack of patience in using the Banshee because it is, it, like you said, it, some pilots are better than others and a certain amount of patience is required to operate one effectively. Um, I like the Ghost and one of the things I like most about the Ghost is uh, the ability to run over opponents so you can get those road kills and, and uh, those add up pretty quick. It's a quick vehicle, it's pretty agile and you can really rack up the kills with that. That's a really good point, and I and I think you mentioned the the point of patience, which is so important as well. the The key to a good Banshee pilot, because the vehicle is so powerful, and because it can make such a difference when it's in play, a good Banshee pilot does have to be a little more cautious with the Banshee because it it, it is such a powerful vehicle that you want to that, that you do want to keep in play. As I was saying in my piece, I think my my drawback as a Banshee pilot was never trusting the Banshee enough and always holding back a little too much. Um, but certainly if your disposition is just to get in there quick and, and, and roll around and do some damage, you know, the, the ghost is, is really good for that. And it's extremely quick. It's extremely agile. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of great moments with, 
with a, a ghost. I mean, another thing, a, a ghost is great too for a, for a solo flag capture because you can just whip over to the enemy team real quick, you know, sneak behind their defenses with a ghost and then hop out and grab the flag and, and walk it back or, you know, get on a man cannon. Okay. So, so speaking of uh, good vehicles to get you the aid in capturing flags on solo journeys, um, that's a nice transition into these next two vehicles, which might be good for that. So tell me which one of these two you prefer, the, the Warthog or the Mongoose? Oh, mongoose, the mongoose, the mongoose, the mongoose. You know, I I love the warthog. I've been driving a warthog, you know, as I've I've been honing my warthog skills for you know over a decade now. Back to Halo One, all the way through to to the you know Halo Four. I've, I haven't played the recent ones yet, but I'm, I'm sure I would. I'm sure that I would enjoy them. I never, 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 never got good instincts with a mongoose and i don't know why that mm. is I, I don't know what i'm what i'm missing or you know what but for some reason i just don't have any connection at all with the mongoose you know i'll go off around with a mongoose and do like eight barrel rolls and you know fly off the map and you know get a suicide or something i, I, I don't know what i'm doing so mm. uh, a mongoose i never had any instinct with i never had a good feel for it um you know, certainly a lot of high stakes games have come down to a great mongoose run on, on a capture the fly match. No doubt about it. But unfortunately for me, I was never one of those drivers that could pull that off. I always preferred the Warthog. Excellent. And, you know, I agree, too. Plus, with the Warthog, you got room for the squad. That's that's the big difference for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's nothing really competes with the thrill of having, you know, three friends blazing down a map in a in a warthog you know you got some you know you got your crazy friend on the on the turret gunner acting like a maniac and you got your passenger trying not to die you know i mean it's just uh, the excitement the thrill the enthusiasm i mean it, some of the best moments in halo happen with three people sharing a warthog excellent yeah and like you said whoever's riding riding shotgun there trying to stay relevant with their battle rifle not really doing much damage but still still at least in the mix in the heat of the battle Definitely in the mix and the heat of the battle, you know, they can, they can hop out in a, in a key moment for capture the flag, or maybe, you know, the Warthog gets, gets flipped over and the, it's the passenger that's able to get over quickly enough and, and to flip it back over to take off. I mean, there's a, it's, it's mm. always good to have a passenger. I think, I think a, a, a really good player can make advantage of being a passenger in, in a Warthog. And that, that really is, is all about patience as well. Um, that if you hang out, if, if you if you wait for the right moment, a passenger can definitely be useful, especially in close games. Excellent. Well, that sums up my questions. I'll, I'll give you the final word. You know, I just, I, I, I just want to say this before moving on to, to your, your uh, piece. You know, it won't be as controversial as mine, of course. I mean, I know taking a big step and saying Ragnarok's the best map is going to definitely turn some minds at this, this episode. But, mm. but just, just bear this in mind, whatever... Whatever our disagreements are about Halo 4, I think we can all unite around a common theme of having a great time with your friends over something simple like, you know, a game of over the Xbox Live, over the internet, whatever it is. Um, some great moments, some great games. So for all my fellow Halo 4 players out there, for everybody else that was in those trenches, playing those games, doing the updates, finding the batteries, just give, go ahead and give yourself a pat on the back. You know, you're in the thick of it and uh, you definitely have earned that. And, uh, you know, we all together made that community what it was, made that community the, the place to be on a Friday night or a Saturday morning. So just thank you all for those memories. Um, and I really, I really did enjoy it. I really did have a, a ton of fun playing Halo uh, with some of, the best, uh, some of the best Halo players that happened to be my roommates, happened to be my best friends as well. 
a ton of great memories. But with that, let's move over to the to the slightly less controversial piece that we just heard from from Joe. Mm. And I want to I want to start this by talking about persuasion, I want to start this by talking about Robert Cialdini's work on persuasion and giving the audience an idea. Let's let's pretend that there's someone listening. I know this. I know this will this will be hard to imagine, but imagine there are some people who really don't like Trump. And just just imagine that if you can let your imagination stretch that far, but just for a moment, what would what would the case be to you or or, or from you? to study persuasion, study persuasion anyways, that even if this is a thing that's been associated with Trump, forget about Trump. People should know about this. Why? That's a, it's an excellent question. So persuasion is, is a, a very potent form of persuasion. And at a high level, what it consists of is priming people to think or see a certain way as events unfold. So one example of this might be if, you know, you, one of your friends comes over and then they, they come out in the room and right away they start complaining about, for, for example, their haircut. They say, oh, I just got a haircut. It's, look how horrible this haircut is. They totally jacked it up. The beard shaves all messed up. They shave my mustache left to right instead of up to down. Like, it, and they just bring attention to their haircut. And from that point forward, that's all you're going to be able to see. You're only going to be able to see the botched haircut. And when, if they had rather instead come into the room and not said anything, you might've just been like, oh, he got a haircut, it looks good. And then just moved on with your life. But what your friend did in the first example was he effectively persuaded you to see things a certain way. And then once you see things that way, uh, there's, no, there's no going around it. It's, it's stuck on there, it's sticky. It's sticky in your thoughts. So what I did here in my piece was I furthered that example to what Trump was saying in the days and weeks and months leading up to the election. He essentially persuaded, persuaded the American population into believing that, or persuading, not necessarily to believing it, but into having it in their back of their head, having it in their subconscious that, hey, there could be election fraud in this election. And that's not only effective as a form of persuasion, but it's also effective from the sense that it gives Trump two paths to victory. It, it gives him options. Um, typically, presidential candidates, they don't say anything about election fraud. They don't persuade the, pop, the public. And then when election day comes and the results come in, they uh, take those results and they run with them. They can't challenge them at that point. But what Trump did was he primed the American public to thinking there could be election fraud. So it came as no surprise to anyone that even though Trump came up short in electoral votes on election night, uh, he still was in it in his mind. In Trump's mind, he was still in it and people weren't surprised because they were expecting it. And now what Trump's essentially done is he's programmed this idea of election fraud into the backs of a lot of our minds, a lot of the American public's minds, and um, it may end up granting him a path to victory. We'll, only time will tell. And let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's explore some of these ideas that I think probably you and I have both seen people talking about on, on Twitter or Facebook, this idea of an alternative path to victory. Let's, let's say that Trump ends up not winning the presidency, that you know, mm -hmm. the, the polls are, are the, uh, the, the votes as they are now really is how it happened, and that's how it moves forward. What would what do you think Trump's most potent alternative path to victory looks like right now? What do you what do you see him doing in the next four years 
that keeps him in uh, in the the fight, basically? Oh, that's a great question. So if if Trump loses and he can't convince the courts, the courts rule against him, and Biden takes control of the White House, Trump still has he has a third path to victory, which doesn't get talked about very often, and that option is entering the media, owning a media company, becoming the media, because arguably whoever owns the media is holds more power than the presidential position itself. Like, for example, if you look at what the media has done with this past election and how the fake news, whether it's on the right or the left, both, you see fake news on both sides, uh, you see that those news outlets have such a powerful influence over people's minds and the way they think that it's created a world where we have a more of a bimodal distribution of politics rather than a, a, a continual gradient. In other words, you have a lot of people in this far right bucket and you have a lot of people in this far left bucket and you don't have very many people in between. So to me, that's evidence of how influential and persuasive the media has been become because it's able to, people's politics wouldn't fall, fall so discreetly into these two buckets if it weren't for someone telling them to think that way. It would much more likely be more of a bell curve or some sort of natural distribution. But to me, that's evidence of the power of the media. And that brings us back to what's Trump's third path to victory. Uh, give up on the presidency altogether and uh, start his own media company. And that could arguably give him more power than he has now. I mean, I, I definitely agree with you on the power of the media. And I, I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anybody that media companies have gotten really, really good at targeting their message to their audience in an effort to keep them engaged with their channel. Can we talk a little bit about really how with just a ton of computing power you're able to hone in a message to an audience to just to be completely captivating all the time. A little bit about A-B testing and how that ties in with ideas from, you know, influence and persuasion. Oh, absolutely. In this, in this day and age with computers and the power, the computational power that even the common person can have today, it, it gives, it gives people superpowers in terms of persuasion, especially these big corporations, these big companies. And you talked about A-B testing, and that's exactly what they do. For example, you could run two different ads, which is very slight variations, and then you can collect extremely accurate data on which one performed better. So maybe one ad, you have an orange background, and the other ad, you have a green background. Um, so you can run those side by side, and you can look at the results and say, wow, this green background performed you know, 90% better. It got 90% more engagement than the orange background. And you can do this infinitely. You can test any different, any different aspect of the ad. You can test fonts. You can test word choice. You can test pro-Trump, bad Trump, you know, uh, pro-Biden, bad Biden. The opportunities really are endless for that. And it's starting to get to a point where it's, it's, it's not going to be fair. This is, this is artificial intelligence that's making these decisions of what's persuading to humans. And since humans by nature aren't rational, logical creatures, um, I think there's a good chance that the AI has already taken control of things and um, they will only continue to grow their control as time moves forward. And, and I think that's especially true if, if people don't take time to learn about 
these tactics that, that can be used against us. I think I would call A-B testing a tactic, basically. Um, but then also taking some time to learn about defenses. And so I know, you know, kind of one of the reasons that someone like a, like a Robert Cialdini writes their work is to inform the public about things that could be happening in marketing meetings or, or you know, other such places. I mean, what are, what are some of the, of the key defenses that people should have when we're engaging in politics or when we're engaging in news or social media? I mean, wherever this kind of thing is going to be rampant, what can we do as a defense to the persuasion that you're talking about being used against us? Yeah, and like you said, uh, studying persuasion for the purposes of a, a good defense is is really the game. Um, some people do study persuasion for the offensive to to you know impose their will on other people, but in my opinion, the most relevant reason to study persuasion is so you could have a good defense, so that the AI doesn't hit you as hard, so that people don't have control over you, and um, some of the the best ways or the best tactics to understand that happen are well persuasion and priming, you know, what people say, how they frame things, uh, that frame will carry on into the rest of the sequence of events of whatever happens. So keeping that in mind, um, keep in mind that humans are very persuaded by fear. So any clickbaity title about the end of the world or this being the end of democracy or, you know, Trump refusing to leave office or in any of these types of things, these fear, fear mongering, clickbaity type ads, uh, you, you can assume that, that that article or that publication is more, it has the intentions of uh, persuading you or trying to get your money or trying to get your engagement rather than just reporting the news. So fear is a good one. Um, anything visual is going to be more persuasive than non-visual. Like, uh, for example, a big part of why people think that some of these old wars, these World War One, World War Two, were so horrible was because we just didn't have the capability to document it in a visual way like we could today. Like, there were horrible things happening in World War One, but a lot of them went unseen just because we didn't have the camera technology. We still had black and white photos. Um, nowadays you just have to take one picture of a crying baby in, you know, some impoverished country and you have an entire line of people ready to help and crying out the travesty, et cetera. So realizing that the visual, visual aspects of anything are, are the, the most important persuading factor to humans that, that can keep you out of, uh, out of a, a lot of, um, what am I trying to say? Keep you out of a lot of skullduggery. It yeah or, or, or David just being too too moved by your emotions right that if you can learn that hey they're they're doing this to me i am i am a a profit base for them or i'm a profit center for a media company they're trying to get me to watch their channel they're trying to get me to engage with their content if you put it in that perspective then i think you you can use that to parse out the information um, I want to get your, your your thoughts a little bit too on um, stoicism and and how this ties into it as well. I know you know even before we started doing this podcast, you know you you kind of told me about stoicism. I mean, some number of years ago, and 
it took me a little bit to kind of wrap my head around it. I wasn't really sure what they were, were, were trying to say, but you know, that, now that I have a better grasp of it, it seems that to me that plenty of lessons from just even a, a surface level understanding of stoicism ties in really well as a good defense against kind of this, this 24 hour news cycle media barrage. Do you, do you see that as well? Yeah. So the, the interesting thing about stoicism is that it was written by the Greeks and the Romans at a time where, where uh, other philosophers were talking about like, what, what is, is like, what, what is being and like all this, like all this hypothetical type stuff that doesn't really have any real world applications. It's kind of just like a, you know, mental games that you play with yourself. But the Stoics, on the other hand, are coming up with actual uh, useful advice, useful type heuristics or things that you could do to better interact with the world. And one of the major tenets is understanding what you can control, what you can't control, keeping your emotions in check. And just having that understanding of Stoicism and approaching some of these new stories that are intended to raise fear in you with the stoic mindset will reduce the amount of fear that they create in you, reduce their overall persuasion and effectiveness on you and effectively make you more of a free thinker. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Stoicism is a huge part, a huge uh, antidote to being persuaded. And I, I just, and one more thing I wanted to, to touch on too, and this kind of gets back into this idea that, that human beings aren't, aren't rational and that we're emotional. And I kind of wanted to uh, share something that I had read in one of Nassim Taleb's books that I thought was really interesting. And it was basically, there's a group of scientists, probably psychologists who are, are researching that question. Is it really that human beings are irrational or is it there's, is there something else? And, and kind of the, mm. the work that they're working on and kind of what they're uncovering is that it's not so much that human beings are irrational. It's that we're being presented with a world that our brains weren't evolved to think in. And so one of the examples that they give is that it turns out that because human beings are social animals and that we need social cohesion, we have a key instinct for trying to identify people who are cheaters, you know, people who are cheating in a game or whatever uh, situation that we have a very keen instinct for trying to figure that out because obviously cheating can be detrimental to a, a, a social group of people. And so mm -hmm. to, to study this, what they did is they presented one group of people with a series of facts that, uh, you know, was basically laid out in a, in a fairly simple manner. And it was basically, you know, think through this process logically and, you know, come to some conclusion. And the, the humans didn't do too well on it. You know, they, they probably did all right, but it was nothing, uh, nothing to write home about. They then took that same set of questions, that same set of facts, but then they framed it as you're trying to find a cheater. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, the people did much better in terms of, you know, whether it was speed or conclusions, I don't remember quite what the outcome was, but whatever the outcome, it, it, it was better than the first. And it was because they had framed it in a way that humans were, were better equipped to, to think. And so one of the things that um, I've been interested in as I, as I read that, you know, paragraph, I haven't been able to get out of my mind, is what, what could we all be doing to communicate in a way that's more natural? I mean, clearly humans are, are very smart. I mean, we've, in, we've invented technology, we've invented the internet, we have all these wonderful things that we've, that we've discovered. We're clearly intelligent, but at the same time, we do things that are just very silly. You know, we're not good with statistics, we're not good with probability, we're not good with numbers. So there's, there's some disconnect between things that we're very bad at doing, but at the same time, we have things that we're very good at doing. 
And so one of the things that I've been interested in, and I kind of want to get your thoughts on this as it ties in with, with media and with influence and with, with persuasion, is how can we frame things to people in a way that makes better outcomes more likely? How do we, how do we use the, the native human brain wiring to its fullest effect while at the same time avoiding some of the pitfalls that humans are, are all too well known for making? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that, what you said is a nice tie into uh, Nassim Tlaib, what he was saying about the way you ask a certain question can uh, change the outcome of the experiment that you were talking about. And that begs the question of, because you, you asked what would make a better outcome. Um, it, what, what is the better outcome? Who, who, who gets to define what better is in those cases? Or I don't know, can you, can you define that a little Sure. More. So I think, I think it was more about avoiding uh, kind of like, like logical fallacies or something along those lines that if you presented it in the form of finding a cheater, that people were, were, were more aware of how to think through the problem. So I think it was more, it was more mm-hmm. along a simple times, a uh, simple test like that, where, you know, what would be better or worse would be something analogous to like making fewer mistakes along the way, something like that, or maybe doing it faster. I would have to go back and reread to see what the actual metric was, but it, it, it was something like that, something like speed or accuracy or something like that, as opposed to something where it was a debate on um you know like uh, like values or something it was it was a little different than that and it was more about how how framing questions in a certain way gives people i, I guess at some level to use a different part of their brain than they would have mm-hmm. otherwise and that leads to to, to a better outcome well it, it's interesting because that seems to be an example is what the media is doing right now because the media today is saying oh there was no fraud there was no nothing fake about this election. Look, even the election officials are saying that there's no fraud in the election. And that's priming their base to, to not see any cheating. So even if the cheating does arise, they're primed not to see it at that point. So that, that, that's one way that I see that that's being implemented in today's life. And that's something to be careful of as a news consumer is Whenever someone's out there saying, oh, nothing to see here, like, don't worry about this problem. This problem doesn't exist. Uh, Maybe you need to look over that story with a more keen eye or look at multiple sources. And and I would think just to get back to, you know, the Scott Adams quote about institutions, I would think that that would be Mm. a sentiment that both the left and the right would agree on. I mean, it seems to me that I could find people on the left and the right who could name an institution that they didn't trust. You know, maybe the left would name an oil company, maybe the right would name, you know, the government or something. I mean, it seems like I could find any institution for, or a institution for either side that they would agree with. They would, would rather have transparency over trust. I, I mm. certainly would fit in that category as well. I'm curious as to what you, what technologies do you think could be a part of that transparency? What does that look like? And, you know, what, what would a, a, a transparent system uh, that would be suitable for, you know, replacing trust, what would that look like? Uh, I think there's a lot of new great technologies that are coming out, uh, specifically, you know, and I, I'm not claiming to completely understand how the blockchain works or anything like that, but it seems as though blockchain or, you know, for example, like Bitcoin, it's extremely difficult to hack because because you would have to change it for the whole system. In other words, every dollar is, is documented and it's all one consistent system. So if someone were to go in and change a digit, the system wouldn't allow it. It would be very obvious that there was cheating involved. 
So, and, and this is, this really is a genius system that's been developed. And I think that elections may have the potential to implement something like this at some point, uh, you know, a blockchain type system that can't be hacked, can't be broken. And it would have full transparency because that's what Bitcoin has. It has full transparency. The ledger exists in every Bitcoin and in, in everyone's digital wallet. So you, you can't just change it one place. You'd have to change it globally. And that's uh, the feasibility of that isn't very high. But I would like to add something else that Scott Adams mentioned as a good rule of thumb for, for looking at cheating, for looking at fraud in institutions. He says that if these two criteria are met, you are guaranteed to have election or you're guaranteed to have fraud in any case. So the first thing would be that there has to be a high incentive to cheat. If there's a high incentive to cheat or to implement fraud, and that might be, for example, with respect to the election, that might be people thinking Trump is Hitler. Like there's no bigger incentive to want to cheat someone out of office than if you think that they're literally Hitler. And in fact, I would hope that people would do that. If people thought someone was Hitler, I hope that they would, you know, play dirty in order to keep them out of office. Now, the second criteria that he defines is a very low likelihood of getting caught. So if there's a high incentive and a very low likelihood of getting caught, that guarantees cheating in every circumstance, 100% of the time. And when you look at something like the election, there is a very low likelihood of getting caught. Um, there's multiple ways, you know, you have ballots that are coming in in mail, you have ballots that are entered into computers and exist as ones and zeros on a local system, you know, not backed up on any other systems. You have flash drives coming in to offload votes, you have uh, votes themselves. It, there's a million different ways that you could cheat, you know, on a small scale, at least whether or not you can cheat on a wide scale, that's still under investigation. But or if it's enough to make an impact on the election, that's not super clear at this time. But in summary, if you have a high incentive to cheat and a low chance of getting caught, cheating will happen 100% of the time, according to Scott Adams. And what, what do you think about that? Do you think that's true? I mean, I, I mean, obviously those two things make it more likely. I mean, I think if you have incentive and if you have an ability to get away with it. I think definitely the, the temptation is there. And it's for that reason that I really do value the idea of putting transparency in place of trust. And I'm really, really excited to hear people talk about blockchain for this. I think it would be a fantastic uh, way to, to record every vote for every election moving forward. And you could literally just see exactly how you voted. And you could, you could literally see the system counting on the other end. And if the two columns are equal, then you're good to go. I mean, it, here's what I would say, just as of right now in 2020, why, why can't we put something like this in place for voting? I mean, mm -hmm. what, what yep. prevents it from, from, from doing it? I mean, I'm not, look, I, I would say that there is no reason why voting cannot be extremely easy and extremely secure. That, that's my position right now. And I think anybody who says otherwise is just lying to me. I think it should be extremely easy to vote. And I think it should be extremely secure. And I look at a system like blockchain that essentially facilitates both those things. If you have one of these crypto wallets, using Bitcoin is as easy as using anything else. It is extremely easy. And yet I know that on the other end of that transaction, 
there is a ledger that for all intents and purposes is impossible to forge. Well, mm-hmm. that's interesting. It's completely transparent, completely distributed and extremely easy. Well, if we can do that for blockchain and for Bitcoin, we can do it for voting as well. That's my opinion. So I would, I would like to see the conversation moving forward of how do we do this? How do we make voting really easy? And how do we make voting really secure? How do we replace trust with transparency and complication with ease? I want to see both happen. And I think they can happen at the exact same time. Yeah. Like you said, tr- re- replacing trust with transparency. Like it, when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense to trust these institutions that are making decisions in closed rooms. In fact, that's why, a, a, well, another example is like the Supreme Court. They don't hold their hearings in public for, because I don't know why, but I, w- I would make the argument that they should have held it in public. We should put as much transparency, especially in any public institution. Like private companies, I get it. Like maybe they need to have some conversations behind door, closed doors, but anything public, um, you know, I, I would even like to see more transparency around tax dollars, you know, how much money's coming in, where that money's going, um, specifically what people is, are, is changing hands of this money. Uh, I think all that should be public and there's really no excuse for not sharing that and having that transparency in this day and age with our technology. I completely agree. And I think this is one of the areas where the people on the left, I'm, the the people meaning the the voters on the left and right if you put them in the same room they would say yeah i want to see more transparency i want to see the military budget or i want to see you know whatever other budget i want to see where that money is going i think that again seems to me like something where if uh, you put people you know individuals in a room on left and right they would say yeah i don't i don't i don't trust the other team any more than your team trusts me it, hey you know what we don't need trust if you have transparency so, I mean, I think, uh, I think that should be a conversation moving forward is how do we get more transparency from the powerful people in our government and especially whether it's the intelligence agencies or any other agency or, you know, there are so many powerful people in the government. I would love to know, or I would, I would love that information to be available to people. And I mean, I think I, I this seem to let has a funny, uh, uh, I guess maybe it's not supposed to be funny. I, I, it's, it's kind of uh, humorous to me, but his idea back with anti-fragility is that information is anti-fragile. That, that is, it's very hard to keep information hidden and that eventually information will find its way out. And I think that is true. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, it just, it just seems like in this day and age with computer power at what it is and, and the availability of computer memory, you know, uh, of what it is, that we should have much more transparency in our government and we should have uh much, much less trust in our, in our government. Yeah. And it's interesting because it seems as though we are getting better and better at, at being able to piece together what happens in closed rooms. And maybe a better example of this is if you look at like crime scene investigations, like everything that happens in the world leaves a track, it leaves a trace. There's something left over from every event. So in the event of a crime scene, you know, there will be fingerprints left over. Um, there will be footprints. There will be, you know, certain objects and rooms moved around in certain ways. And that ends up leading to evidence that's able to convict people in courts. Now, with technology, we're getting way, 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 way better to the point where we're going back and we're solving all these cold case files that we had no way of solving back in the day. 
just because we have new technologies like fingerprint DNA detection, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's going to get harder and harder to cheat and to not be transparent because even if the parties involved don't disclose the information of what happened, I think that there's going to be cyber detectives type people or just detectives in general that can, that can really just look at any situation and with a high degree of certainty, be able to predict what had happened in that case. Yeah, I, I does. I think you're right. I think you're, we are only leaving behind more and more clues basically because (laughs) of the digital trail that we all leave behind. You know, I don't think anybody can even begin to comprehend the digital trail that, that all of us have been webbing around the world, you know, with this online purchasing or, you know, doing things online, whatever it is. Uh, I agree. I think it is getting harder and harder to get away with things. And, you know, and there, there, there are definitely people who talk about transparency and there are definitely people on the right and the left who, who, are, who are calling for, for better transparency. And so to those people, we, we applaud them. But I think, you know, to, to move forward, uh, we need to have a, a, a very real conversation about what, what things need to truly be hidden from the people. Uh, whether it's for national security or whatever it is, what thing, what things really do belong on that list and what things mm-hmm. don't. And, you know, and, and then, and then go from there and, you know, hopefully with, with more transparency uh, and, and putting systems in place that, that allow things to be tracked, uh, you know, and to have records that are easily accessible, you would just completely remove any concern that people have over, over, over things, you know, like we're talking about the election, but it could be other things as well. I mean, just putting in place a transparent record that was easy to, to consult and easy to, to verify with an outcome, uh, you know, then it seems to me that like you'd be in good shape and you could put a lot of this stuff behind us. So, so what's your, what's your impression on, on some of these public figures that are saying, no, we don't need transparency. Just trust us on this. We got this. There's nothing here, nothing to see. here. Yeah. I mean, I would just go back to like Vietnam. I mean, I don't know how anybody comes out of Vietnam out of the Pentagon papers without thinking like, wow, I mean, this was some high, you know, some, some, some high level of, of, uh, line going yeah, exactly <laughs> going on. Um, I mean that the the fact that uh, that the events around the Vietnam War actually happened, and that the Pentagon Papers were released, and then we had the fallout from that, and you know Nixon resigning was a watershed moment, I think, for a lot of people. And it, it was it was surprising. I, and I wish I could remember who says this. I will give them credit for it. But um, I think I think it might have been Christopher Hitchens. But he was saying. You know, even though Richard Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon was a Republican, in a way, him getting caught was actually a validation of a lot of the concerns that conservatives have over big government. I mean, it's like, here it is. Here is someone lying. Like, like this is the fear that you're all talking about, the fear of big government. Like, this is an example of it all going wrong. So, you know, for me, examples like that are, are enough to make me skeptical. And it isn't, it, it's because when you're at that level, you have so much potential to do so much damage. I mean, the Vietnam War, you know, whatever, and I, and I, I understand there were complications going on and that communism was real and I'm not going to minimize that at all, but that doesn't excuse the lying to the American people. And I, I would just add to that, that it, it, that always, 
gave me the impression that I was never going to trust uh, anybody in powerful positions, uh, at least as low as possible, because it's, it's, the, the stakes are too high. I mean, all of us should be skeptical of our government every single day. And um, that's, I think that's one of the problems of having political parties is that it makes you less skeptical of your team, that you, that you trust your team more than the other team. I think that, that that is a bad thing. I think that once somebody's in office, we should just treat them all like the government and trust them all the same, which is, I think, very little. And I think that would lead for a better outcome. So what, what, who do you think you can trust in today's world? Well, that's a good question. I think, I think if you had to trust somebody, it would be people who are kind of on the outside of the system and who don't really have much of an incentive to contribute to the, to the system. And I don't want to speak in vagary. So let me just, you know, be specific. You know, if I was talking about an investment and I heard an investment from somebody on wall street, I would be skeptical. If I then had that same conversation with someone like Nassim Taleb, who's made their business basically being an outsider to wall street, I, I would probably trust them a little more because they're on the outside. And I, and I, I do, maybe more than I should, but I, I do value that outside opinion. And I, I do value people that are a little bit outside the system who are, are willing to critique it. Um, because when you're inside of the system, you have a lot of incentive to kind of keep the shit moving forward and you have a lot of incentive to not rock the boat. And I, I worry uh, about the impact that it has on people's objectivity. So when you're outside the system or if you're, if you're, uh, if you are, you know, basically independently wealthy and I, and I, I'm not worried about you, you know, being bribed by somebody Then I'll probably trust you more as well. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting because if you look at politicians in particular, like political jobs, po political positions don't really pay very much, right? Like even I think president of the United States only makes $200,000 a year. That's the salary for the highest office in the nation. But you see all these politicians with just tens of twenties of thirties of millions of dollars. And I mean, you got to assume all that's coming from lobbyists or, or some, some, some other way of laundering money into their bank accounts. So like you said, you, if you're independently wealthy, that gives you some form of credibility compared to someone who has made their wealth from lobbyists, which in this world and in this nation, it seems as though 95 plus percent of politicians are being paid by lobbyists. How can we trust these politicians if that's the case? And why is this not a bigger, a, yeah. a bigger issue at the forefront of the public? Well, and that, that is an issue that I will admit to have changed my mind on probably the most out of all the political issues that I are I, topics, I guess the one that I feel the most differently now than I did maybe four years ago is money in politics. I used to not really care that much about lobbying and about money in politics. Now I really do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that is something where, again, you, you have uh, powerful voices speaking out against it. You have powerful voices that are, that are trying to call attention to lobbying and to the detriment of lobbying, but it's, it, it's, it's not, um, as potent an issue as I wish it were, because I, I do think that the state now politics with money in politics is that it is very hard to, um, it, it is, it, money is very powerful and money speaks very loudly. And I don't think that it has complete control over people. I don't think that it's the only voice in the room, 
but it's definitely a voice in the room. And a very simple logic test here is if it didn't work, why would they do it? I mean, why, <laughs> yeah. why would you spend money? If lobbying had no effect, then nobody would spend money doing it. So they're clearly spending money doing it. So it's clearly giving them something. And even if it's only giving them a seat at the table, then that means anybody who couldn't pay didn't get a seat at the table. <laughs> so no matter how you slice it, it's like if lobbying is not bribery, and I, I think this actually came from a, a, a jank on the Young Turks, I, I, I think, but it was really funny. But he basically said something like, if lobbying isn't bribery, then what is it? And it's like, that's a good yeah. point. I don't really know what it is. <laughs> like, it's hard to really argue against that. Like, if it's not bribery, what are you paying for? It? You know, and it, it's it, it's an issue that um, that I, I used to not care that much about, but now I really do. I, I worry that it that it, it displaces um, the impact that local groups can have, local constituents, local people who are trying to, to move on a political issue, if they're outdone in terms of money, I worry about uh, how potent their message will be. And obviously, I, I, I think that their message should be more, more potent than somebody who can just happen to pay a lot of money. Yeah, and it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why our, the political parties aren't, don't share that same sentiment. Like, if you look at the left, for example, they they're all about, you know, not giving power to these big corporations. And with the lobby lobbying system that by definition is giving the power to these big corporations, whoever has the most money gets to decide the politics of the nation in, in a sense, you know, like look at the deep pockets and the deep, the deep pockets of Facebook or Google or some of these other big tech companies. Um, you know, they're slinging around hundreds of millions of dollars in politics to influence things. And I, I, I feel like it's a, a common ground that both parties could get behind to try to put a stop to it. But it seems like yeah. they both indulge in it instead. Well, and, I, and, and to that point, I think it's another issue where there's, a, there's a, a, a chasm between the people and the people in office, right? Where I think mm. if you put the average, you know, conservative and liberal in a room and say, hey, do you think that a big corporation should be able to use a bunch of money to sway political influence? Uh, no, I don't think anybody would say yes to that question yet, <laughs> yet that is, is, is almost certainly being attempted. I mean, again, we don't even have to say that it's happening. It's at least being attempted. If it wasn't being attempted, why would they spend the money doing it? So, I mean, it's that, that it's, it's another issue where I think the people agree or are, let's say in more, more closely in agreement, maybe than the parties are. And, you know, that is a real frustration to me because um, my, my feeling ultimately, and I, I don't know that I have any, any data to support this. I mean, this is my intuition, so it's probably wrong, but this is how I feel. Um, I, I feel that people are more united politically than the media and the parties would have us believe. That's, that's how I feel. And I feel that way because mm -hmm. I interact with actually a, a fairly solid mix of people from different areas of the, of the political spectrum. One thing I want to get into, not on this episode, but on, on, on a future episode, is the idea that the political parties are really not representative of, of the totality of ideas. And now while we have this left-right axis, we need like an up-down axis and maybe like another axis as well to really capture other political ideas that aren't really being captured in the American model of liberal versus conservative. I think there are other positions to have that are also worth exploring. Mm -hmm. But that, that people... Are, are not 
really all that different. I mean, obviously we do have some differences, but I think that we are more united in, in many ways than the media would have us believe, than the political parties would have us believe. And that um, if you put people in a room and say, look, here are 10 issues, come out with one that you guys agree on, or not even agree on, come out with 10 solutions to 10 problems, I, I think you might get some, some decent thought out of that actually. And it's, it's a shame that that does not seem to happen in, in the spaces where you, you would want it to happen in the spaces like social media, where of course you just find your thought bubble and it just, you know, descends into, you know, chaos and then you know, a few seconds or something, or you get smeared immediately or, you know, it can go wrong so frequently, but you know, that ecosystem seems like it could be a place where people actually could connect with other people on different, uh, different political beliefs or different, different value systems and come to some kind of compromise or come to some kind of solution. But uh, as it stands right now, as you're talking about with, with, with lobbying influences and also just the influence that the media has on trying to keep people divided for purposes of making more money, um, that's not going to happen unless people put the effort into making it happen. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think th those are some excellent points. And uh, you definitely set the stage for some good future conversations. Um, any any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? I, I I just I guess I just want to say this. I I think um, it is not going to be. Uh, uh, let, let me start over again. I I think that the people in this country do control our future, and I think that the people in this country do have power, and that we are at our strongest when we work together, and that that, that probably seems cliche, but that in all the chaos happening right now, um, I still think it's possible to find common ground to start from, and I would just encourage people to, to do so, and then more importantly, you know, if you're looking for some something fun to do this weekend, blow off the old Xbox, blow off the old Halo 4 disc, boot up your system, and get online and have some fun. Okay, those are some great, great optimistic comments for, for our listeners. Very, it was always best to end on a high note. And speaking of ending on a high note, we do want to thank the people that have been going to our website. Our numbers look great. We want to continue to see them uh, improve. So please do share the website. Please do share the content. Again, the website, www.rosesandrhetoric.com. Also follow us on Twitter at roses underscore rhetoric. Uh, but with that, Joe, I think we'll go ahead and sign off on this episode. So uh, thank you all for joining us today. This is Jimmy Hackett for Joseph Stanford signing off. Ciao. <laughs> I, I've received some feedbacks that uh, we should stop talking about washing our genitals and buttholes in the shower. Who was talking? Who, who gave you that feedback? <laughs> I, don't even, I, I don't believe one word of that. I gotta keep our our listeners anonymous. Oh my god! If, if you showed this to your family, I'm gonna be pissed. <laughs> Make that real crystal clear. <laughs> if, if, if this feedback's coming from a Stanford, I'm gonna be effing pissed. <laughs>